Welcome to episode number 66 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin, I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Cifaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. Our guest today, somehow for the first time, is Danny O'Dwyer from Noclip. Uh, the latest episode of their Greatest Hits series just dropped, and it covers the history of Dundee's DMA Designs, creator of Grand Theft Auto, Lemmings, and a bunch of interesting related stuff that you probably haven't heard of. Danny, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. I always feel like you have so many experts on the show. I feel like I'm somebody who just interviews experts and then steals their knowledge. Well, what audience. is an expert but someone who... Uh, <laughs> what is did, grief if not love? Like, what is, did you what need is to it? be born with it? Did you need to like, like just at five years old understand how all video game development what is an works? expert I mean, Danny? define an expert i guess you make a good point um yeah well, i try my best i guess it's that i jump from uh from topic to topic because we covered so many different games so i always start from a baseline of nothing and and try and accumulate as much knowledge as possible and then you know put the video out into the world and see all the things that i got wrong well i would say at this point um I would I I would think that there are some small nuggets that didn't make it into the documentary. So at this point, outside of people who worked on the game, you probably know the most about the making of Grand Theft Auto of anyone. So That's, you are the expert. Sorry, it's hard to tell, right? Because like <laughs> if you you know if you if you look at any well, not every game, but like so many fandoms have these um, or so many games have these fandoms that persisted. You know they they never let up, and you know almost they sort of you know calcify into these even you know greater groups of 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 knowledge sharing and people who just know more than the developers that's the thing that comes up with me where we interview developers about games they made 20 years ago and they're like i don't know any of this because i made this game 20 years ago the last time i played it was 21 years ago <laughs> and so it's uh it's always interesting there's always an expert somewhere anyway uh so why did you make a documentary on uh, dma designs this is a really an easy one. So the show we do on Noclip, obviously, so our, our YouTube channel, Noclip, it covers video game documentaries. Um, we make docs on games that were made. We interview developers. Uh, before COVID, we you know went to a lot of studios and talked to a lot of people. Um, and the idea is to make basically behind-the-scenes docs on games that were generally like made fairly recently. Um, the the reason for that being that it's easier to produce those because people have just made the game so they're they can still speak to it uh, and also if you're <clears throat> going to a studio then chances are the people who made the game last year are still there or a lot of them and um, so we didn't do many retrospective docs as a result of that um because they just take a lot of work and we'd have to fly to multiple cities and all that uh, once covid happened um and remote interviews became something that we felt we could do on the channel and it wouldn't look like we were cheaping out. I think that's what we were sort of worried about. Um, once that happened, it was uh, it was easier to, to uh, I guess, make those happen. And what we did was basically start, set up a show where we asked the uh, patrons of our, of our uh, channel to pick games. So they would suggest games and then vote on them. Uh, the first one that won was Roller Coaster Tycoon, so that was a lot of fun. The next one was Thief and Looking Glass, so that was that was pretty big. I was bigger than maybe I was expecting for that series. Um, and then on this one, uh, DMA was one that I had been advocating for a couple of months because um, I grew up playing Amiga games, and uh, they're 
based in Scotland and I'm Irish and I think when I think about Grand Theft Auto, the Scottishness of those games is really apparent to me or the European version of America that exists has always been very apparent to me. So I've always wanted to do them. And then, yeah, ultimately they they voted for DMA over, I think Unreal Tournament has come second three times in a row. Um, uh, so, so sorry, Cliffy B. Uh, but uh, yeah, they said DMA and then I went searching for Scottish people. I, I do like that you mentioned that um, the Europeanness of the depictions of America is very obvious to you. Um, because as an American, to me, it's always like, oh, it's just a very, like, parodied America as opposed to a European version of... I mean, of course, I think it still is a parody. I don't think anyone in Europe was like, yes, this is 100% how America is. But it's, I don't know, I, that gives it a little bit of a different um, a different feeling than I had of it growing up, which, I mean, you mentioned multiple right. times in the documentary, um, or even some of the people who worked on it mentioned it, that, like, people often think this is an American-made game, and yeah. it wasn't at it's, first. <laughs> it's, it's just, it, it's one of these times where cultural perspective, sometimes we forget when it comes to games, we sort of, there's a bit of monoculture in the syringe, the way we talk about games sometimes, right? And I think um, this is an example of a game, probably just because it's so big and so many people have played it, where to me at least that distinction is super, super apparent because I can I can see it. Like, you know, in the same way when American films are made about things in Europe, you, you get that differing of opinion, uh, which comes from, you know, your learned experience and stuff. And to me, like... I, I know things that scream America to Europeans that Americans don't know about. Like, yellow school buses is the most American thing in the world. But, like, to most <laughs> Americans, it's just, that's what school buses are, right? Whereas, like, th so there are certain things, certain colors and highlights and tones and things in American culture that scream America to Europeans. And I feel like even when you play the modern Grand Theft Autos, the one that always kills me is, is Pacific Sunsets. They don't look like that. And I grew up on the, you know, sort of, western edge of europe and we have beautiful sunsets in ireland as they as they you know go over the atlantic and you get a different type of sunset because of the way the ocean works in light refraction but ours look different and whenever i played gta when gta 5 came out i was like wow yeah they nailed the, the american like pacific californian sunset you don't you know it just it, it's it's always interesting i think the different like you know elements of culture that foreigners find interesting well just like before the pandemic, I was in Poland because I spoke at a thing there, and and uh, um, I went searching for uh, retro games in Poland. It's not a thing, but I found them anyway. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, talking to the the kid who worked at the shop, like he was just so fascinated by the fact that I was an American, and right. and the one thing that he discussed when wanting to be an American was driving fast cars. <laughs> <laughs> just the and idea you were that, like sir i drive a prius that's right. what we do no at the time i drove a 2002 saturn l series that's sedan right. <laughs> yeah the idea that like everyone in uh you know especially if you say you're from california or san francisco yeah. they, they oh, assume yeah. you're like steve mcqueen or something you yep. know? <laughs> yeah that's exactly it and that, that just makes me think of grand theft auto now that you're saying yeah. it. it's like yeah that's that's the american dream we just gra we just grab fast cars and drive really fast and shoot. i think you should roll with it be like yeah i'm an i'm an actor i live in Hollywood. <laughs> it, it works the opposite direction too i think and we don't see it as often because sometimes you know because america generates so much pop culture that is like global 
But like, I think, you know, to take the Polish example, The Witcher is a really good example of European sensibilities when it comes to morality, like the way we think about things like war and who's right and who's wrong. I think that's very different to the American sensibility of historically that type of thing, right? Because like war history and borders in Europe is this very messy, dubious, like who's right, who's wrong is, you know, often far more gray involved, I think, um, than in newer parts of the world, like, you know, North America. And I think when you hear Americans talk about The Witcher and what they like about the book and the games, that's one of the things that comes up is this sort of moral gray area that they find interesting. So, like, we don't often talk about it, I think, in, like, general... At least when I worked in the games press, this sort of stuff didn't come up a lot. But because we, like, travel around the world and talk to people in different parts of the world, we try and include their geography and sort of where they're from as part of that story because i think oftentimes not all the time but oftentimes it's it's a really important part of it and i think that's a very good segue into the beginning of this story too which is um you know dma designs is like you said it's a a scottish company um and you have um, some really amazing shots of Dundee. I think you said you, you hired people to do that because you couldn't travel, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, we, we kind of realized early on it was going to be a character in the story, so we hired a crew out of Edinburgh to, to go film it. Uh, Urbane Media, they did a terrific job. <laughs> so where does where does our story begin? Uh, Dundee is a, is a it's a, an old industrial town on the east coast of Scotland. Scotland is a very coastal country, a uh, very, like, sort of seafaring country. Um difficult place to farm a lot of uh you know tough terrain up there um and the town was very it reminded when i was doing research it reminded me of my hometown i'm from a town called waterford in the southeast of ireland which was the original capital it was the original viking settlement you know i skateboarded on streets beside walls that were a thousand years old it's an ancient city and like i'm used to that from growing up and it was an industrial city and then you know it was a port town and an industrial city you know, post-industrial sort of struggled. And Dundee was very similar. It was, a you know, a city that had massive industrial boom during the textiles uh, uh, sort of export market. Uh, jute was a, was a huge industry there, as it was in my hometown. Um, and once, I guess, you know, the, the industrial crash happened, uh, it struggled for an identity. Um, it has a pretty good, like, journalism um foundation and an education as well but in terms of the i guess uh what happened next and where you know blue collar workers i guess as you call them over here uh, working class people went to work um what happened was there was basically two companies actually we only mentioned one in the dock there was two american companies that came in to fill the void um one was Timex, the watch manufacturer, um, uh, who made watches for years and years and years. And the other one was another American company that makes um, sort of ATMs and, and point of sales machines, like cash terminals and stuff. So you had a, a city where, you know, all the sort of like working class, a lot of them were involved in electronics and software at a certain stage and that type of thing. So, you know, my hometown we had a a glass factory waterford crystal was sort of our big export so everyone i knew worked in the glass factory and all of the things that would like fall out of the back of trucks or like every christmas you'd get waterford crystal because somebody worked in the factory right but whereas in dundee especially in the 80s and 90s uh by that stage timex's main job was making zx spectrums they were making all the spectrums for sinclair technologies for the uk market so out of the back of trolleys there, spectrums were falling. So that's why 
during this time, you had an amateur computer club in the local college, which wouldn't have been something typical in, you know, especially up there, maybe in London or like other metropolitan places in the UK. But the 80s were tough in the UK and, you know, people weren't spending a lot of money on computers, but just the right amount of stuff was going on in Dundee where they had a club and then the four founders of of DMA, who were all young men at the time, just kind of bumped into each other. So uh, they bump into each other and it's um, it's a it's a sort of computer club. But, uh, you know, while some of them just want to hang out and play games, uh, (laughs) some of them actually start trying to make them right. Yeah, it's that typical thing of, um, you know, in the UK at the time, in Europe, the computer game world, where there was a million and one different types of machines that were all kind of looked similar, but not really the same. And none of them were programmed the same either. So you had like Amigas and Spectrums and Commodore 64s and BBC Micros and Ataris and Amstrads and everything under the sun and everyone had their own version of it or this one was cheap in in the local shop this time so they they had this sort of like melange of different machines and systems that they were using and yeah for whatever reason they wanted to make games and basically what happened was they just started doing like messing and tinkering same way like gamers these days would mod if they wanted to mess around with design what they were doing back then was basically copying their favorite games or porting their favorite games to their you know amateur porting to their own system um and that's kind of where it started, was them trying to make their own little shmups, their own little, you know, side-scrollers, platform games, that type of thing. Um, and then as it happens, when they sort of went to do one commercially, I believe it was Blood Money was the first one that, that Dave Jones, who was the founder of um, DMA, um, the only company that he could connect with was the one that was closest, which just so happened to be Psygnosis, which is, again, another... You know, when you think about the UK during this time, the big publisher is really impactful. You know, Psygnosis, famous for Wipeout, and what if they eventually became Studio Liverpool? But they were the biggest publisher in the north of England, and that was in Liverpool. And Dundee is still about four mile, four hours drive away <laughs> from Liverpool, but it was the closest publisher they had. And I guess that's where they ended up sort of plying their trade, was doing port work for them. So they have all these, like, credits, like, I think they did the C64 port of Shadow of the Beast, and bunch of other things like that and that that all sort of like led up to them eventually making you know one of the biggest games ever lemmings <laughs> yeah and I, and I don't remember exactly where this started but it, it's such a important moment in video game history i think where um mike daly uh at dma uh who has a fantastic twitter account by the way everyone go follow him uh uh, starts experimenting with like, well, how small can I make a believable animated character? And to me, this is just the moment that actually creates DMA. It's Mike is one of these people as well who you would all love because he has a blog and he hasn't finished it yet, but he has a blog with a with a history of DMA um articles uh, on it, which he's made. It looks like proper like you know late nineties HTML tables and all that sort of stuff. But he's got like original photographs, like a lot of the stuff we sourced for the documentary was pulled right off of his website. He has a YouTube channel where he had videos of like the DMA Christmas party and like, you know, a tour of the office, like stuff, you know, from the early 90s. Like who did this? Nobody did this. (laughs) Unicorns in game development for for historians. My God. Incredible. So like there's only certain people like him and like Romero's someone else who like did the work to save 
<clears throat> you know, his own history as part of it, right? Did you ever um, see BBC's uh, Tetris documentary? No, I didn't. It, it's it's fantastic. You should. Uh, I think you. I think you'll probably get some inspiration from it. It's called From oh, Russia right. with Love. It's on YouTube. <laughs> That's a great name. Um, How did, did they have footage? Because I, I assumed like there wasn't much of anything. With so a lack of, was... Hank Rogers. Uh, you, you you know vaguely the Tetris story, right? Yeah. With, with Hank going to Russia to get the rights and everything. Yeah. Hank filmed himself in Russia. Oh, wow. <laughs> like in the cab going to meet them. He filmed himself. For some reason, there is footage of Hank Rogers playing Tetris for the first time at CES. Like he hands someone the camera and plays Tetris. It's like, what? That's Are you he... a time traveler? Like, what is this? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> that's, that's, it's like, um, yeah, there are some, sometimes you get these biopics or histories where it just so happened that somebody who was close to the story was the type of person who just documented a lot mm-hmm. of their life. And I guess that's probably more commonplace nowadays. But like, you know, the person who always had the, the video camera around, that's absolutely, that's yeah, why you get a lot of biopics. Went to Russia and brought like extra tapes and you're like, what, what are you yeah, doing? When, when would that have been? Like eighty nine, eighty eight, maybe. So, wild. <laughs> yeah. so Mike, similarly, yeah, he like he he kept a bunch of stuff. Yeah, they to the point where even I think it was back in, maybe it was last year. He eventually found the original disc they had where they had the Lemmings level builder on it. So I know that's been sort of that's appeared on YouTube since. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. He had this. Like, what a terrific, um. Uh, you know creative discussion to have because i think it crossed all of our minds probably while we were playing games back then especially the two ver- sort of ends of the spectrum they talked about were um beachhead 2 which was a uh you know a sort of a i i know i'd never played it growing up but it was a game where you're sort of doing like a normandy landing style thing um where they had like little characters running throwing grenades uh, and and they looked pretty good for the size. And then you had this sort of the Jordan Mechner um, school who, you know, that all the Prince of Persia stuff, which was obviously, you know, famously rotoscoped in his in his estate with his brother or whatever, dressed in a robe. But you had that whole idea of, yeah, like how small can you make a character with the amount of, you know, VRAM we have and the amount of like pixels to create someone that has some sort of believable um, movement. and that's how you ended up with characters that were that small that then you could have that many of them. And that's also crucially why they ended up being these sort of little weird monochromatic um, characters that needed to have a very distinct difference between what the top of its thing was, the head, what the body was, and then what its like skin was. So you had this like red and blue, like, <laughs> like what, like it doesn't look like anything, but you know, it looked enough like I guess that's why the front of the box had this big character on it because they need you needed to because otherwise you'd be like what am I playing like what is what is this lemming thing yeah it needed to be fleshed out into an actual character from the like you know eight pixels that <laughs> that compromise each character which is which is wild to me and I I love that you asked the question um and I think you should answer it here too what like what are they what the heck is that thing is it a real lemming is that meant to be like the animal the lemming and (laughs) what is it (laughs) yeah when when you played this game when you were younger did you did that cross your mind like i think everyone who played lemmings was like well these aren't lemmings (laughs) like like oh i didn't know what lemmings i didn't know there was a real thing called a lemming (laughs) right i played the game as a kid so i'm like okay this is a fictional construct this is is a fictional (laughs) creature called the lemming i i buy it i'm in 
Yeah, maybe I did too, actually. I, I don't know when it happened that I was like, the, the, the cognitive dissonance or whatever sort of snapped, and I was like, why are these like bipedal green-haired things called lemmings? Yeah, so I had to, it was like one of the questions when I first started like researching lemmings, I was, I need to get somebody to answer to me this question, like, were they actually meant to be the animals? And it was, it was no, it was more the concept of a lemming, the sort of, the 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 old wives tale of lemmings that follow each other no matter where right if a lemming walked off a cliff then you'd have a whole line of lemmings walk walk off a cliff which is a complete myth it, it, it only happens becomes... when walt disney uh documentaries <laughs> yeah. force them to yeah exactly <laughs> when they shove a bunch of lemmings off of a cliff and... exactly yeah disney has a lot to answer for exactly when it comes to animal <laughs> cruelty there was a lot of that going on um uh during that era but uh yeah, so that's what they said. They said it was basically just like we needed to have a name that explained that these are just going to, they're just going to walk. And they don't even really follow each other. They just walk, you know, because if you put a, you know, if you, if you make one of them do something, it's not like they all do the thing. But like, I guess it just like explained it enough. And, you know, I think some people maybe don't realize as well or remember that back then you sort of had, like every game had a character or lots of games had these characters, and often those characters were very removed from reality, or they were, there was a lot of animals, you know what I mean? Or you would like Zool, or James Pond, or Brian the Lion, or well, I was going to say, I think that's or... especially the case in Europe, not necessarily yeah, as much in the United States. They're on the but... Amiga, there's a lot of uh, vibrato <laughs> in the music, you're jumping and collecting things that are rotating in the air, there's a lot of that, yeah. Yeah, a lot of like, <laughs> there, there's no... Um... There's no foundation. There's no like logical foundation to any of it. It's just a lot. Of, like James Pond is the absolute epitome of this. It's like what is going on in that game? Like, All those games are just like I made a game. I'm a programmer, and exactly. I don't know theming. Sure. <laughs> so Lemmings was kind of like yeah, uh, you know they were. He talked about it a bunch where they were trying to basically make a bit of a cultural um, everyman or something you know kind of like minions where they were just sort of you could you know the original version of lemmings had you know licensed music from like prince and the a-team and batman and robin and stuff but they stripped all that stuff out um and they they sort of vibed a little bit more on lemmings too with like different areas and biomes and stuff like that but um yeah it's a it's a weird game I, and i and i like that you had that conversation about the the sort of intent of the characters of, of them being sort of an, an everyman you could just costume whatever you want on them and have you know batman lemming or whatever and while while it didn't go that way or maybe it did in later games i don't know i never played past the first one who did um <laughs> exactly. like it's 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 i, I don't know I, I wish more people would have those conversations when they talk to creators like when i when I talked to uh, uh, Iwatani about Pac-Man, that was one of my first questions. It's like, what is Pac-Man to you? Like, who is that guy in your head? And and he had an explanation that I loved, which is like, he's just essentially this, like, he's he's almost an animal. Like, he just wants to eat. He's just kind of an, kind of an idiot, and he just <laughs> wants to eat whatever's in front of him and have a good time. And that's Pac-Man. Wow, that's all. That's me. That's, <laughs> I've, I've never identified with Pac-Man more. <laughs> so Lemmings, I mean, I, I don't think it's worth going into what Lemmings is necessarily, but you know this uh, this game, you know, to me just sets the foundation for the rest of DMA at this point. Like, I think this is where they find their identity. Is that kind of your feeling as well? It's definitely where they 
got the money to find to 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 jump to the next level because that game as you know got ported to every possible system they basically had orders for you know any every for not just for sequels and spin-offs of which there were again more than you can even fathom um i'm not sure if any of them ever captured the the notoriety of that original but it it appeared on everything and and continued to like you know there was a psp lemming game i remember selling in when i worked at gamestop and you know it, it always kept appearing maybe it was more popular in europe perhaps had a longer tail than it did um over here um but yeah, it basically, you know, they were a studio who, which made their sort of bread and butter on porting work, and then they would use that to pay for original titles, which is not too dissimilar to the way a lot of studios still operate today. Um, and then I think what sort of happened there was that they, because they got so much money, and because a lot of that porting work was porting Lemmings to other machines, that they, eventually they sort of did the same thing, but it was just all in-house. So they were porting Lemmings with a lot of people, and then they had more people on board to do um, original projects. And that same sort of ethos of, I guess, just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks that they had, where, you know, Lemmings is the game we remember, and none of us are here talking about, you know, Blood Money or any of the other uh, early titles. Um, they sort of had that ethos with the next games that came up. Um, and then they also had international attention. And what a weird collaboration that Nintendo and a, you know company in the north in a in the fourth largest town in scotland ended up working on a bunch of stuff um some of which came out some of which came out but not with nintendo's support anymore um we could have spent a whole documentary just talking about body harvest on its own um but uh yeah all the different games that were funded by through bmg through uh, gremlin that never came out they were working at one stage on like seven or eight games um, and it's funny we we talk about most of them i think we talk about all of them to a certain degree in the, the documentary but it's funny is the one thing that we asked people you know which is the one you thought was going to be the most successful um none of them knew but apparently they did an informal poll around this time and the game that came at the bottom was grand theft auto <laughs> wow <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me, and maybe this is jumping ahead a bit, but it doesn't surprise me because from everything that people told you, that game was a mess until they just uh, until the polish stage, right? Like, like, like there. I forget who it was, but someone in your in your in your in your documentary was like, you know, I played it when it was feature complete, when it was, you know, everything is in the game, and it just. It it was terrible. There, like the controls weren't there. There was, you know, the audio design hadn't come in, and and you know, I can I can see that too. Like if 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 that doesn't feel good to play, that feels like a disaster project. Yeah, I think that was Colin McDonald, who was one of the producers on GTA Two. Um, yeah, he was talking about that, and and it was very representative from everyone we talked talked to. Uh, so the original sort of design document for GTA was originally known as Race and Chase, is now available. Um. But one of the things that people kept telling me was that while, you know, uh, Dave Jones, who was the founder, um, he had a lot of ideas and would give ideas to the team and like it should be this and sort of guide, you know, from on high a little bit. But they were very free to take ideas in whatever direction they wanted. There wasn't that much critical oversight of what they were doing. So while the original design doc was the way it was a lot of the games they didn't have design docs or if they did the design doc was sort of just like the starting point it wasn't something that they were super married to 
to focusing on. So yeah, the original, they tried a bunch of stuff. You had, it was a kind of a game with multiple modes. One where you were the cops, one where you were the robbers. One had like a chasing mode in it. Um, and it was kind of around the time that 3D games were coming in as well. Like they talked about, we didn't put it in, but they talked about somebody grabbed a copy of Tomb Raider when it came out and how they were all kind of like, oh boy, like this is this is the future. We need to be doing some of this. Um, and Grand Theft Auto, like I even remember at the time playing it or seeing screenshots, it was an ugly, crappy looking game. You know, it, people didn't buy it because of its graphics. They bought it because it had... It was doing something we'd never seen before, which was this contemporary large city that you could sort of seemingly go anywhere in. Um, so yeah, it was funny that finding the fun in that game sounded really important because GTA is a hard game. You go back and play the original GTA; it's not, it's, it's not easy. Like it's, it's the levels are tricky, the shooting's tricky, it's difficulties, you know, not really holding your hand. And there was some critical stuff that basically got them there. A lot of technology work to make sure that that camera and the streaming all worked fine. Um, the driving model, which one of the engineers basically took from another project, and it basically solved loads of problems. The accidental aggressive cops, which came from them basically not knowing the difference between... Like, they were trying to attack the midpoint of the car's boundary box or something, so they were... They when by the time they got to you, they were trying to attack the center of the car, which is why they kept like ramming and and wouldn't like, you know, stop and wouldn't chill out. Um, and then of course, yeah, the music stuff, which again was another accident, which came from them realizing that it was going on a CD and that they had this game which did not look like it needed a CD. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let, let let's stick on GTA. I I want to circle back to some stuff before GTA later, but um. You know what was this GTA team like? I, it's so it's so tempting as an outsider to look at a game like GTA and be like, yeah, there was clearly like a designer with a vision, you know, and and that's where this game came from. But that does not seem to be the case. No, one of the most striking things that I didn't really appreciate um, when we started it was how few of the people on the GTA team specifically had never, ever made a game. Um, so they'd grown a lot as a team, um, DMA, and they had multiple projects going on. Uh, but for the most part, it sounded like people stayed on their game. Like you didn't have people floating to different projects or anything. Uh, the reason why it was really good to talk to Colin Anderson was that he was the lead audio guy. So he was involved in all of the team. So he was like, you know, working on every project. He was floating, whereas the other teams were themselves. So he could speak to the whole, what was a good team and what was a bad team and, you know, good leadership and good oversight and that type of thing. But what's really interesting about GTA is, yeah, is that like a lot of these people have never made a game, which is completely wild. Like some of the engineering stuff, like Mike Daly had worked on the original tech concept for it mike was sort of like the technical linchpin of a lot of the the stuff that happened to dma he was involved in the start for a lot of that but yeah you had people really trying to figure out what that game was and because it had a relatively long development cycle for the time it was like two and a half years which you know back then they were cranking out games in six months right um you also had people coming onto the team uh so you know the guy who did all the music for it for instance he literally turned up his first day at DMA and sat down at a desk. And it just so happened to be in the area of the the floor where GTA was. So he was on the GTA team. Um, Brian Baglow, who we interviewed 
who ended up having a career post-DMA at Rockstar as well, so he could speak to a lot of the GTA 3 stuff. Um, he uh, was hired, he he tried to get hired as a programmer and was terrible and didn't get past the interview. Um, so he sent in like a ridiculous, uh, like over-the-top resume with loads of lies in it, like just like obviously full of sh- And uh, he got hired basically because they were like, oh, you're funny and you can write good. <laughs> <laughs> so he ended so he now he works in PR and or he did work in PR for years and now he's like head of like the Scottish you know g- this games uh, foundation over there and, and I think like so he's re- he's good at talking basically but he um he got hired as a writer to basically add stories to the missions because they had all these missions and there's nothing tying it together so it w- it was just this like like there's a million ways in which this game comes out and nobody ever talks about it you know there's plenty of games like this you know Hill Street Blues on the Amiga I remember playing loads of that. That was a top-down game with cops. Nobody ever talks about it. Uh, and GTA ended up just really doing something unique and doing it well. And and it was, you know, like you said, the last six months, it sounds like, of polishing and just getting it over the finish line was, was where it all came together. So this isn't really covered in the documentary but do we know why they were in a position to polish the game for six months was it delayed by the publisher because that's not a that's not a thing <laughs> no, no one gets that like we we'd we'd be making gtas all the dang time if we had six months to polish whatever <laughs> we were working on i think the nature i would so i don't have a direct answer to that but i think i know and i think it's two things coming from my side that that the nature of the bmg contract that they had signed was that there was multiple games involved so i don't think there was that much pressure on any one of the games necessarily um i also think that maybe this is where sam hauser comes into the picture a little bit so i really wanted to get an idea of like you know rockstar are such a closed box and as a result the only people that we associate with gta are the ones that get the flashy headlines um so I really wanted to establish like how much involvement the Hauser brothers had really in those early games. Um, and also people like Leslie Benzies, who were sort of known as, you know, you know, the Rockstar producer at Rockstar for a lot of those games afterwards. I wanted to get a sense of who these people were, where they liked, where they respected, how much, you know, input did they have, how much leadership did they have, and all that sort of stuff. And for the most part, the Hauser brothers had very little direct involvement in in the games. Dan did some QA work on the first game and then he directed the intro for the second game and sam was the executive producer from the bmg side and this is bmg interactive so it's the new interactive wing of bmg records he had come from the music industry his job was more of an anr type guy he was basically a sort of a sign games you know keep management happy type of thing um i do think at that stage my impression is that bmg thought that this game was kind of cool that like maybe there was something here i'm not really sure and perhaps just to give it a little bit more time to to get finished i don't think it was finished six months from the end is is a big problem uh for them on that and i think the way they sort of jumped on gta 2 obviously the game then was commercially successful so that solved a lot of their problems but i think just how quickly they jumped on gta 2 as a project to do a big marketing push behind and all that sort of stuff is um demonstrative of that as well and bmg did a lot of work on the marketing side like they weren't really involved at all in the dev side of it um one of the interviews we talked to russell k talked about how sam was involved on the 
he sort of would check in on the PlayStation version quite a lot. Um, but just again, from a very, is everything sort of, you know, going, how's everything going sort of perspective. But on the marketing side, you know, um, I, we, so, so we didn't get into it because of a couple of reasons. Um, but there is a famous story about how uh, Grand Theft Auto was brought up in the Houses of Parliament because of, you know, it's this violent game that's come out and X, Y, and Z. Um, that was basically all planted by BMG. They hired um, uh, a, a sort of an infamous PR person, um, marketing guru, who at the time in the UK and Ireland, he sort of was known as a, there's a sort of a cult of personality around this guy. He is subsequently... Um, he was jailed for uh, child sex abuse and has he died in prison. So the reason why we didn't basically talk about him on the dock was I didn't, you know, I didn't want to shine any more light on this com- particular individual. Um, but he's he's famous in the UK, basically, um, uh, uh, as you know, because he was this guy who was on television and a marketing guru and yada, yada, yada. But basically that was all done by BMG. So they they knew at the time that he was, or that the game was going to stoke some controversy, and we can use that to basically get free press. So they knew they had something on their hands. It wasn't like it was a complete shock to BMG that this game might sell, or might be have a niche or something. So I think that's why. I think near the end, once the game started to play good and feel good at the studio, I think that's maybe when they got a little bit more breathing space to sort of um, cross the finish line. Yeah, I mean, they they tapped into that sort of thing where, like, there's nothing that makes anything more appealing to teenagers and stuff than adults saying, like, no, and this is bad, and this will corrupt our youth or whatever. I mean, that is... <laughs> Ex- explicit lyrics. <laughs> yeah, that is sticker, a very... Right? That, <laughs> that is a, you know, immediately an appealing thing to people, and I think, yeah, as long as you have the game to mostly back it up at that point, it's like... That is an effective way. I mean, obviously, Grand Theft Auto has continued to sort of ride that strategy throughout its life, but um, yeah, it's it's an effective way to to get interest in the game for sure. Yeah, violence violence goes a long way, and you, you could see like you know games like Carmageddon around that time were really leaning into that. Um, I talked to the developers about like how much they were leaning into that, and it's you know it sounded like for them it was. It was it was just like an extension of Lemmings. Like Lemmings was a game that had that sort of like, it's like dark comedy. It's a very British kind of thing. That type of like bleak comedy that you get around death and stuff. And like to me, that's a lot of what GTA is as well. It's not you know, it's ridiculous. Like it's uh, I can see how it's like insensitive and dumb. And certainly the later games, you know, once it got to three D, did some maybe more insensitive stuff in that direction as we we sort of got a little bit edgy in the early aughts but like you know the the running over Hare Krishna stuff like it's like you can see the the nonsense element of it like that's where it comes from it's just like oh we need to get a bunch of people to go in a line so we can give you like a bonus from like that sort of arcade mentality it's very slapsticky like it's not it's not like a a violence that is I don't know. To me, at least, it just feels very like silly violence. It's it's not so much that um, it's this brutal, you know, horrifying thing. It's like I, I think someone in the documentary compared it to Tom and Jerry. It's like yeah, it's right, just, yeah, 
it's a lot of violence, but clearly not meant in a serious way. And what I've always liked about GTA is that your character is as susceptible to that violence as everyone else is. Like, you die very easily. When you get shot, like, the game, like, takes the mick out of you. You know, it, like, zooms in and says, like, wasted, and you're just, like, in a puddle. Like, it's, it's you know, if you walk on the train tracks, I remember you get, like, electrocuted and turn into a skeleton. Like, it's, you're as part of this sort of, like, you know, uh, unforgiving world. You know, the, the world in GTA, it's a, it's a hard game. And it's a game that's like big and there's lots going on and you're just one player in this big city. So it always felt when you were playing it, I think that you were just like a hardened criminal living in a hardened world and the world is against you. It's not like some power fantasy where you're gunning down loads of people, right? Because usually if you got in an exchange with, you know, two or three baddies in that game, you were dead or if enough cops like there's it's a it's a hard game. So I yeah, I think when you're outside looking in again it can look like it's more of a violence fantasy than it actually was. Yeah, and I mean, this is kind of what I meant earlier with the Lemming setting the stage for everything. I, ju- I just see Lemmings when I look at Grand Theft Auto. You know, I, <laughs> like it's, it's, um, I mean, it's more like, it, it's like the pedestrians and also the cars are just kind of like in a really dumb straight path and they're just kind of, you know, doing their own things without your involvement and, and until you go in and involve yourself there's a lot of them on screen they're 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 drawn pretty small i mean the the, the right, characters yeah. that are running around are essentially like overhead lemmings you know um You're right and and the violence and and the the humor i mean just the like getting electrocuted into a skeleton i mean that's the same to me as blowing up lemmings into like eight pixels that that go across the screen and and to me that's it's just it's the same tone and and you know, I don't. I don't think a Grand Theft Auto happens without a Lemmings. Yeah, and 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 Grand Theft Auto Two is, I think, very similar to that. And I think Three is where you start to see a little bit of that deviation. It becomes more, a bit more of a power fantasy. Like it's not that hard to gun down quite a lot of baddies or cops. It's also just like part of, you know, three D games. Controlling, aiming got better. You know, there's the the style of gameplay i think that's always the case with these games is that gameplay had always come first like the way we talked about how lemmings was a game that was made and then they basically have to figure out what do we call these things you know the same way gta was a game that was originally about racing and then turned into this sort of like cop drama or robber drama i mean the story was added last so like you know gameplay was always the focus of these games and then they sort of got all this stuff attached to them and obviously that's not necessarily how games are made in the 3d era but um yeah i think maybe that gets lost in translation as well that how gray box these experiences really are originally you know as they're making them you know that that original design document is fun to read if for no other reason than it shows you just how different gta is from it so, you know, th- there's a lot of projects at this point, right? It's not just GTA. Uh, it's a pretty big studio. It's 100 plus people uh, yeah. divided into multiple teams. Uh, you know, it's 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 stated at least four times in the documentary, I feel like, that like some of the teams were good and some weren't good. And, <laughs> and, and um, there didn't seem to be much of a, like, creative through line, but there, there was sort of a... a all their games do feel like DMA games to me when I look at them. There, there's something well, about them. They're all sandboxy. Yeah, I think is the the one through line is there's always like a lot of stuff happening that you can sort of choose to interact with or not. And um, but yeah, that that 
looks like a lot of different things, um, especially as we start getting into the 3D era. Yeah, it's wild how like I hadn't I hadn't grokked that at all until I talked to Gary Penn and he was because he was sort of like creative development guy on top. You know, he was like he was looking at a lot of teams and trying to like figure stuff out and and it came naturally like it was just the games that they wanted to make and it was probably the era as well to a certain extent um but you're totally right yeah like he said that they were all games like sandboxy games is the term that was kind of like you i guess i feel like that's even a five-year-old term at this stage but you know same way lemmings is where it's a game where there's just stuff happening and you can kind of poke at it and (laughs) you know see what you can you can do around it and then you'd games like yeah, like Body Harvest, which was a, you know, a 3D, sh- you know, shooter game, but it wasn't linear. It was in this open world. You could go into buildings and you could go out of buildings and shoot things and get in cars and like all this freedom that you didn't really have in these games, just like GTA. And then, you know, Space Station Silicon Valley, which is another like just, you know, you have all these, you can jump into different animals and get them to do different things. And like, what You're are the a solutions? microchip that possesses animals <laughs> right. is the game. And, and it's... It's 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 GTA. I mean, it's like you're you're just the cars are animals. Though, you know? <laughs> yeah, you can see this. It's like you can see the th- if you, it's like a it's like a this whole story to me is like a, a seeing eye picture or something. Right. It's like if you just look at it the right way, it all lines up. Because when I was really when I went into this one, especially I, I was trying to find what the through line was because to me it just seemed like they were throwing everything at the wall and it just so happened that twice they landed and they ended up being two of the biggest franchises ever but i have so much more respect now for games like wild metal country um you know that i i barely known about or space station silicon valley which was always just like this weird oddity um no one ever talks about tank dicks you know that's the, that's no. the one i hadn't heard of until i tank dicks is such a, yeah and it's it's actually like there's a game that was made in the bay area called cannon brawl which is one of my favorite games for the past uh like 10 years which was woefully under um appreciated and it's basically tank ticks. like when i <laughs> I, I, I learned about tank ticks, i was like oh this is crazy that's because and it was a game that i really loved so um but yeah similar stuff just like really like that James Pond ethos, right? Of just like gameplay first, you know. I, I forget who said it. Um, it was one of the best. I think it might have been Colin Anderson again. I think he said like, "I I feel bad for all of the marketing teams who had to deal with this stuff because just like, <laughs> <laughs> like how do you sell any of these games? They're just so esoteric." Yeah, and I think you did. You know, when I first looked at kind of what was going to be presented in this documentary, I was like, wow, that's a lot of pieces to run through to get to GTA 3, which, you know, is kind of the the game that changed the game industry of that time. Um, and, you know, actually seeing all of these stories and seeing the gameplay and, and hearing from all these developers, it became very clear to me why all of those had to be included as part of the story. It's like, oh, yeah, this is... This actually is the DNA that makes up GTA 3. Like, you cannot have that evolution without weird games like Body Harvest and Space Station Silicon Valley. Yeah, if you tried to make the jump from 2, right, it would just be impossible. Yeah. There's there's, there's too much of a gulf between GTA 2 and GTA 3. Um, 
and it was it was trying to figure it out. like i i was just genuinely curious my whole life of like how does like how does three go made is it seemed too ridiculous that the studio who had made all of these games some of which were good and some of which weren't would just stumble into a hit that big like and I, and it could have been the fake case and that would have been fine but it seemed like there was just like i wanted to know who the stakeholders were who made that transition because i don't like in my head i was wondering if two is like the sort of difficult second album problem and maybe they just wrote the ship on three you know maybe they just like oh let's remake two but in or one but in 3d maybe that's what happens or i wasn't actually expecting that it was essentially the space station silicon valley people who largely were responsible for leading the the charge on three um but but also like to your point uh kelsey i think that when you're doing a doc like this like the knives are out if you do not talk about certain mm-hmm. games as well right so like <laughs> body harvest was one that has like this crazy fan base so we needed to talk about it a little bit at least um you know there were games like i've mentioned blood money which we didn't spend all that much time it does on. not have the following um, blood money so yeah. no probably not <laughs> although if i i bet there are a bunch of like you know 50 year olds that got the game <laughs> as a English, kid yeah yeah who were probably like <laughs> angry that didn't get more but um yeah, I think it was it, it was trying to explore. I, I mean, we would have interviewed about them, and if none of it was relevant, it wouldn't have gone in. You know what I mean? So it was it was amazing when it ended up being so relevant. And I think again, it was it was it was well, we got Obi to come on, but I think it was Colin Anderson again who said, you know, he didn't think that GTA Three could have been made without all of those games, the good ones and the bad ones. Um, and and I was delighted to give GTA Two its day because I am a huge fan of that game, and I think it's it's uh. It's sort of the dark horse of the series. We didn't talk about the London games at all, actually. We didn't even mention them. Uh, those were made by a different studio and uh, was largely a Sam Hauser sort of uh, experiment. And we didn't have anyone to talk to us, so we didn't... Maybe I should have explained that in the doc or something. But um, but yeah, at least giving GTA 2 its time of day was was important. Because uh, that, that game is... That game is rad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to... I want to pause on just the fact that i mean you mentioned it just a second ago but it was largely the space station silicon valley team that starts working on three it's not the people who are working on one and two can you explain that a little or bit body better? harvest which i think a lot of people sort of assume you know that like it just feels like a more clear through line body harvest to gta3 sure yeah. yeah yeah we did we did in the b-roll we had a lot of we took shots of the body harvest manual and then it cuts the gta manual and it's like almost the same thing it's like how to get into a car and like how to like you know do missions and and all this sort of stuff um i think it's also important to know that um and hopefully this came across that like the people who work there seemed to really like working there and they all seemed to get along so while they were all in their own teams the they did mingle a lot they did sort of um hang out together they all went on you know drinking together on a friday um some of them were in different buildings but like the gta 2 i think it was space station silicon valley and i think wild metal country were in the same building together so they all would have known each other and been hanging out and talking and exchanging ideas and you know i think a lot of the underlying tech they did one of the things i said was like it was ridiculous that we made like these seven games and they all had different engines and they all had different things and they, there was no like commonality between any of this stuff so i think what you had is engineers jumping 
to put out fires in different games um, and to figure out problems in different games a lot of the times. Um, it was that type of, you know, it's not dissimilar from today, I suspect, but that type of design-led stuff where people, you had programmers, but a lot of the back-end stuff, a lot of that engineering stuff was handled by a sort of a core group of highly specialized people who would come in. So that's why you had games like, you know, the, uh, it was a Wild Metal Country that had all that amazing like physics in their driving, which ended up being a big part. He, the guy who did that was also on the GTA 3 team. But yeah, it, it came back to the teams thing. And this this is an element, I think, of games design that doesn't get, or development that I have definitely learned about more over the past couple of years, which is the importance of not just good leadership, but like... um institutional knowledge and you know having a good methodology for figuring stuff out and leslie benzies who was just a programmer on space station silicon valley he basically became the sort of there was a producer on that who ended up leaving and he basically sort of became the de facto producer on that because he was just very good at organizing people and like he was amicable and people respected him and he listened to people he sort of became the person that was doing that um the lead artist on that one as well, Aaron Garbutt. Um, he worked well with him. And then Obi, who we talked to in the dock, um, he was one of the lead programmers too. Um, the three of them ended up sort of, they were the sort of brain trust on Silicon Valley. And they ended up being the people who worked on um, on developing three once the studio left to go to Edinburgh. Or I guess technically they split, and but the Dundee office didn't last very long. Um so yeah, I, I think a lot of it came from they were just good at getting games shipped, working together, knowing, you know, good game feel, what was fun. Um, they had learned a lot. You know, they'd shipped a game. Space Station Silicon Valley is a pretty esoteric game. Um, but they had gotten a game out the door and maybe Space Station's problem was that it had a kind of weird setting and a lame story and was kind of hard to you know, I still don't mark, get it. Mark it. It's, 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 yeah, it's not very sexy. So like one of the best things about GTA 3 that they didn't come up with largely was what the game was. That was GTA 1. It was a game about being a crook in a city that was a parody of America. So they had the setting. They had sort of the riffing off of Hollywood sort of, uh, you know, element there. And, uh, you know, they didn't try and reinvent the wheel. So their only job at that point was make it fun, <laughs> make it interesting, which I mean, genuinely, like that that cuts down a lot on what you have to think about and what. So it it makes sense to me. Or pre-production wise, right? Yeah, it's sort of like if 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 the uh, the way they all talked about it was, you know, when someone has a good idea, and then everyone else in the room has a good idea off that idea, you can you can sense when there's a good idea in the room. The GTA three from the outset was just such a strong idea it was it was all there we have 3d games now let's do the grand theft auto one thing but let's do it 3d and you know we'll have the radio stations i'm oh I'd have the radio we could do this we could do this we could do that you know that it just it it became easy to come up and ideate and, and come up with new ideas that worked and added to it and everyone was excited to work on it as a result and they could they could see the game right because they had body harvest and space station silicon valley and gta one so when you just go asleep at night you can see it so i think you know it had they had a really strong idea they now had people who had made games in the past across the, the board and they had good leadership they had a good team they had one of the best teams that had worked at dma and so you know 
that's where that's why how it all sort of lined up so you know there's a lot we didn't talk about that's in the documentary everyone go watch it you know the the sort of uh the transition of dma and into uh rock stars is a a big part of it uh we didn't get too much into the uh sort of strange partnership with nintendo and 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 how they didn't quite gel uh when it came to body harvest but uh can we we, do you want to talk about that for a minute i think that to me that was one of the ones that i'm like oh you you guys are going to want to talk about this probably yeah yeah well and i have i have questions too but you can start wherever you no, you go ahead. I, I, well, ask the question. I'm interested in what you're interested in. I, I've personally always been very curious about Kid Kirby because it's just, I mean, no one has really ever been able to explain exactly what it was meant to be. And even in your documentary, when people are talking about it, it seemed like everyone was talking around it. And they're like, yeah, and it was just, it wasn't going to work. It's, it was a mess. But like, in what way? Like, did anyone ever elaborate what on earth kid kirby was trying to be was you know was going to be yeah i i feel like that's probably on us that we could have dug a little deeper i don't think there was that much reticence to explain it necessarily and what it sounded like and this came up with a bunch of games we talked about body harvest is a good example it was that the games that they worked with with nintendo changed so much that if you ask one person what it was and another person that it's it ends up being wildly different uh from my understanding it was some sort of 2d platforming type thing um but you were playing a yeah like a like a baby kirby i'm not sure if it was (laughs) kirby's baby or if it was kirby as a baby but i think what you did i the question i had for them actually was was there any connection between kid kirby and space station silicon valley because gameplay wise you know kirby sort of sure yeah right taking the power of another thing i was like is, and they were like no that's complete happenstance actually that they were in any way can they were different teams different uh, sort of eras almost um the thing they talked a lot about with body harvest in relation to that was um so i guess off the back of lemmings they they you know the n64 was coming out um what was it called it the ultra 64 whatever it was it was going to yeah. yeah um and nintendo basically reached out to a bunch of third-party studios to try and make some launch games for them and lemmings being a fairly like nintendo e game uh in many ways except for them you know you hitting the suicide button mass suicide <laughs> button for them all to explode um that was kind of what got them through the door and then body harvest was again not the most nintendo sounding game body harvest um but uh the, it was a the game that they pitched to them and they were on board with it well and let's also be clear real quick um nintendo at this time is a little desperate for third-party support <laughs> um because the playstation is clearly going to kick their butt um and nintendo's made a lot of studios very unhappy over the years with how controlling they've been um about pretty much everything you know controlling right. the production of cartridges and uh you know putting all of the risk on the developers and, and that sort of thing so i mean at this point like they need that this dream team concept they had with the ultra 64 is something that they really need like they need third parties to make some interesting uh exclusive games for the uh ultra 64 nintendo 64 um or it's not going to go so well for right them. so they might have been a little bit I, I mean i just say that because i wonder if that paints um like if that colors their resistance or lack of resistance to agreeing to projects that are maybe a little bit outside the normal nintendo comfort zone 
I wonder, it's, it's, it's very interesting as well, all that, given when you think about, like, so Miyamoto visiting Dundee and, like, a bunch of Nintendo people visiting Dundee and, and also the DMA devs constantly going out to uh, Japan as well to talk to Nintendo. There was lots of stories about, you know, how much it changed and how they were sort of, like, some people said they Nintendo wanted it to be more like a Metroid-y type thing. Others were saying, like, a little bit less violent. Other people were saying that they... They were had like they would basically bring the guys over and then have sort of the you know the the famous Nintendo sort of like brainstorming stuff of like putting all the post-it notes on the wall and like trying to like connect the ideas and find where that sort of like strata of ideas simplifying the concepts and you know and and working on things like they said like a big part of the reason Body Harvest had like the, um a lot of like indoor outdoor stuff was this whole um ethos that some of the nintendo happened people happened about the inside space and the outside space which you see a lot in like you know pokemon games and zelda games and stuff like that and dungeons like that transition between the two and the, the effect that that has on the player so they said that there was like lots of stuff to made into body harvest which was from really positive ideation with them um unsurprisingly perhaps given the fact that this was you know a bunch of people from scotland and a bunch of people from japan there were some communication issues uh I think mostly because back then you didn't have sort of a shared vocabulary. So outside of just the general translation problems, general cultural differences you'd have between those two people, um, they just had concepts were tricky. They said that they had like, they had difficulty, you know, they, people would come back from Japan and kind of not really know what they wanted. You know what I mean? Uh, and it was just, it was, that was part of just the, you know, the logistics almost of, of that relationship. Yeah, I can I can imagine a lot of that. I mean, I'm struggling to think of a specific example for gameplay, but like the concept of a producer in Japan is a very different role than what a producer means in the English language. So right. like there's there's probably a lot of things like that where, you know, a, a certain type of gameplay move or environment piece or something or just has two totally separate definitions. Yeah, and and, and like even conceptually i feel like the way perhaps i wonder if like you know outside of terminology which is going to be this big mountain to climb but then also you know i think i imagine and i don't i don't i've only we've only ever interviewed one japanese team so i, I can't want to speak with too broad a brush but I, I could imagine how people in scotland would be very literal in how they sort of explain game stuff whereas perhaps in japan they might be a bit more it might be a bit more heady or or like sort of ethereal, like the way in which they tackle projects. So um, in many ways, it produced like a, a really fascinating game that like kind of there is nothing really like Body Harvest. So it's kind of cool. Ultimately, Nintendo didn't end up even publishing it. It was um, GT, I think, who who, who they Midway. ended up. Midway, I think. Was it Midway? Oh, it was Midway. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, who ended up publishing it. Um, but uh, yeah, what a, what a weird little... And Kid Kirby was another one that like, yeah... I will say from Kid Kirby, it sounded like it was just a bad team that they didn't get enough done on it. That they there was some there were some issues there uh, production wise. Uh, that seemed to be what people were saying that it just never came together. And well, it's remarkable you know, to me that um, at least from Nintendo's perspective, it was far enough to not only announce but to uh, um, one could theoretically order a point of purchase display for your store for Kid Kirby. <laughs> Right. Uh, at one point. That's wild. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, and this is where a lot of uh, all the awesome work you guys did for us comes into play. Was there was so much, especially those games. There was so much like assets and 
like uh, PR materials and contracts and all of these like interesting snippets that sort of showed, you know, how I guess people thought about DMA and like the excitement around a lot of these games and and you know even yeah it was wild to see some of that body harvest material out there so early when you think about the timeline of it um similar to like the you know seeing i you know some of the photographs you guys got for instance of the gta 2 filming was exactly what i needed to figure out how to explore that whole angle like what was that about because like the GTA 2 intro could not have less to do with the gameplay of GTA 2. Like, I think there's a box that it has looks like, like the, the sabotage it. music video or something, and then you play, yeah. and it's like futuristic with laser guns and stuff. Yeah, five minutes into the future, nothing, and like, yeah, and it was like, oh, is it Dan Hauser now living in New York, sort of like twiddling his thumbs? Uh, uh, you know, let's let's produce this this movie it was a movie that they made to market alongside the game and then they essentially did a cut of it for the intro to the game um and yeah like the team liked it apparently they were like yeah this is neat um we we tried something similar for gta 1 but yeah. <laughs> we don't have any footage apparently we're doing fake drive-bys and that's Dundee. so sad that you didn't get that <laughs> i know i looked i asked them around and no one has it yeah i mean i, I was really happy with just how much you were able to use um with, with oh, dug up. So I mean just to 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 back up on that. So, you know, Danny um essentially commissioned the foundation to to go digging and uh we have a lot of material. Like if you watch the if you watch the documentary, it's it's like when there's still photos, it sometimes was us. There's there's two team photos that we dug up. There's uh the Grand Theft Auto one like conceptual sketches, which I was really excited to find. They were awesome. We had to find out who did those. We so we did a bunch of searching with people to figure out what they were and who made them and what context they had. And so you figured it, it out. To, great. Because like from yeah. all we had was it was in a press kit, you know, it was like concept <laughs> art. Um, and, <laughs> and yeah, I'm really glad we were able to find that stuff. Cause we, I don't know, like, so we, we have a lot of the stuff. It's just not cataloged yet. And, and the, the reason I'm able to find anything right now, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> Which, <laughs> um, and you might imagine that I'm just digging through physical discs and popping them in. It's not actually not what we do. It's just that when we have digitized uh, press kits and things like that in the past, um, we've done so many so fast that we have not cataloged as we've gone. It's just rip, put it on a hard drive and walk away. Um, but what we do is that at the time of ripping the disc, uh, we generate a file that tells you every file name and date that's on the disk. And then that's all in just this massive CSV file that I have. <laughs> so the way I was able to find any of that stuff for you, and and I should say, by the way, everyone, like, like we are working toward cataloging this stuff. That's that's like where we're going with this. We're just not fully staffed for it yet. Um, the DMA stuff is done. The, well, not really. <laughs> like like there there might be more, Danny, but the the, the right. way I was able to find stuff was literally like, text string searching file names from every disc that we've ever ripped um and so you know things like gta tend to work really well right but like space station silicon valley like that's not you know i I think i found a couple hits with like silicon but i just kind of got lucky sometimes where it would be in the same press kit as something else as like you know s s uh, wait, they say SSSV. You know, it's like the folder name. It's like, oh, there it is. Um, so yeah, it was really, yeah, happy to find as much stuff as I did. Uh, 
I I think I hadn't realized that Kid Kirby was DMA, so I probably could have found you more stuff there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, we were we're so used to like using like squeezing you know blood out of a stone when it comes to the sort of stuff that like any t- like it was like it totally changed the vibe of the production because it meant that I could spend longer. Like sometimes if you don't have B-roll, it's really hard to talk to something for a long period of time. It's the same reason why like you know uh when we did the the footage we got that crew to you know f- you know it's, it's expensive enough to get a team in edinburgh to drive to dundee and film all this beer you know what i mean it's not for no reason yeah so, you can't just show but, your face talking about dundee the whole time right yeah no because if you do you'll talk to about dundee for 15 seconds whereas because we had all this sort of stuff we were really able to like explore the space so like that it's like i think what can't be underestimated when you're coming to like doing documentary stuff is like I think and I think why I was so happy that we you managed to turn over the stuff so fast and we involved you really early in the process was because it like impacted the story because we got to tell way more like that that documentary is 20 minutes shorter if we don't have all the work you guys produced like it it totally allowed us to to speak to all these things that otherwise and like it it made it made it so that the questions I was even asking them was like because like that GTA 2 thing like I was interested in that and then when I got the photographs I was like yes we can talk about GTA 2's intro we can like really I can ask the questions and figure it out. So, and um, when you're interviewing people too, I mean, I, I don't know your exact process, but in my experience, kind of jogging their memory with a, a physical thing or a, a photo or something like that tends to tends to work pretty end. well. I should. I actually gonna. I'm gonna take that on board. Uh, I didn't do that, but I should. That's a fantastic idea. Yeah, it's a. Sometimes we do a lot of. Um, I do a lot of like uh like memory gymnastics with them. So we'll just like ask them <laughs> questions about like where they lived or like. Where did they get lunch when they worked at the studio just to get them back there before we start asking the questions? Because otherwise, you know, that's it's a like, great idea. Well, you just do that thing with memory. We we sort of have the answers prepackaged, right? So if you somebody asks you about a place you lived in, you know, or a job you had, you probably just go to the first memory you have. You don't sit in it for a while. So just trying to steep them in their memory for a while before we ask the important questions. But like, that's a really good, like if I was to, again, if I was to show a picture of that, um, like one of the images that was the, the the photograph of the 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 studio if i was able to show that to people then you totally would get loads of things like you know oh, i used to smoke cigarettes out the front there or yeah you know i met my wife in yeah. the pub next door you know what i mean you, you get those things but you know you, you show them the the picture of the team and just have them name everybody and totally. then you'll and then you'll get something where they're like yeah and that's john and oh yeah and one time john came into work and said this and that's why i did this <laughs> right. yeah it's so cool. It's like anything helps. Um, one of the cool little snippets that we found on YouTube was this BBC report where they went to interview. I cannot believe that existed. Is that, I is, know. I, isn't it jaw ridiculous? actually dropped during that part of the documentary. I was like, there is a whole it's like, like, studio walkthrough interview with like half the staff. This during is GTA 1, which no one cared about during its no development. One that was, yeah. No one knew that was yeah. going to be a giant hit at that time. It was so, and the guy who did the report is like a well-respected technology journalist in the UK that like people still, so he got tagged a bunch on you on Twitter and people were like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but is it like, well, yeah, when I found that it was like, and that's, it, uh, that's not that like unknown a video. Like it had like maybe a couple thousand views on YouTube or something, but like when you, yeah, it's like so ridiculous when you see something like that for a game that ultimately like, you know. At the time, nobody thought was impressed. My favorite thing about that, and so what we did right at the end, I sent the cut to Mike Daly because he is like the 
you know, resident historian at DMA, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I sent it to him and I said, look, just if you have time, if there's anything here that you think we've misrepresented, give me like give me a shout. We don't often we don't usually do this with like contemporary docs or something, but I just want I needed a sanity check on this because there was so much story and I I was worried I might have said something that was wrong. And he he basically sent back like he said it's fine, everything's okay, there's nothing you need to change, but like here are four or five things that you could probably tweak um a little bit uh with with all that sort of stuff. And one of the things that one of the questions I had was he actually mentioned that the mocap uh originally i had said that the wireframe pictures that you guys had found of gta 1 uh, of the past of the pedestrian oh, 3d renders of the guys yeah yes the, so the guy said that they didn't use those right in the end the guy who did those left the company and ultimately they just drew the sprites but i was like in the script i had oh but it does explain at least why there was a mocap studio and i think you might have seen this cut actually why there's a mocap studio at dma um that part got edited out of the final cut because Mike said th- that mocap studio was 100% for the cameras. They just set it up because the BBC were coming. So they like never got used, was never like set up. It was just completely fake. So I was like, <laughs> I, I could have written that in, but I, it was too much of a sort of tangent. So I, I just cut it out. But I thought that was pretty funny. Like you see this guy punching. <laughs> oh, was it? <laughs> and yeah, and it was, uh, yeah, and it was just for show. So I thought that was pretty funny um so what's next what, what's your next one uh we did the vote last week the three finalists were um legacy of kane soul reaver homeworld and unreal tournament all 1999 games actually oh interesting. um yeah. did unreal tournament and, uh, come in second again it sure did. <laughs> Always <laughs> the bridesmaid. I know. We're ha- we'll just have to get around to it. We were gonna we uh, we we were talking to Epic like year two of no clip about doing something on UT. I moved to Maryland and I was like, Great, we're gonna we'll head down to Rally and, and talk to a bunch of people about facing worlds and, and all that nonsense. Um and then Fortnite came out and it was like, Oh, we have no time to do anything right now. We're just gonna do this. Um but uh, the winner was the Bay Area's own Legacy of Kane, Soul Reaver, made in Redwood City by Crystal Dynamics. Yeah. Um, so I am very excited. I think some of those people are still local. Oh, that's great. So that's pretty cool. And from our perspective, um, in that era, IDOS was just about the most generous uh, when it came to PR assets. So, oh yeah. Um, so I'm fairly sure we have... A lot of stuff for that. Um, we probably have some things in storage as well because um, we we have a lot of material that was uh, at IDOS US. Um, this is this is a happy and sad story. It was like 2015 okay. or something. Um, you know, uh, IDOS was sold to Square Enix well before that, and they essentially shut down the publishing office that was here in the Bay Area and and moved all that to the UK, but it was still there for years, and uh, Crystal Dynamics was still in that building, so there was just, you know, uh, this sort of ironic tomb uh, of IDOS uh, under Crystal Dynamics, and and, uh, when they were moving offices, someone who I knew who was working there, like, set things up, and it's just like, okay, come today, and you can grab some things. so the happy part is that we we got a lot of things, but the the sad part is that anything that was like really interesting was a was a no no. Uh, and you know there was, 
I remember there was there was a cubicle that was filled as in like under the desk and on top of the desk, just nothing but burned builds of games. Oh my God. They were like, no, we have to destroy all these. We have no time to look at them. (gasps) They're done. Um, I pulled out a box and it was full of zip discs and, and the, (laughs) Hey, two, two fifties or one hundred. I don't know. I don't, but the, the one on top was, uh, you know, pandemonium. If you remember that game, pandemonium, pandemonium logo.psd. And I, you know, the oh guy I was gosh. with, I was like, okay, does anyone else, th- does this exist anywhere else? This file? Is this like the one copy of, I'm not saying the pandemonium logo is, but it's like, there's a whole file box with more zips. Like, can we have these? And he's like, no, cause there might be a game build on one of them. It's like, it wouldn't oh fit. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the PSD the barely so fits. So I, I don't know if any of that stuff got destroyed, but, um, uh, we did manage to take home some uh, marketing files, so it's uh, cool. so there. I think we've got some Legacy of Kane stuff in there. We've got um, some large posters and things like that. That's not terribly useful, but I don't know. Put it in the background of your it's, shot. It's hard to come by <laughs> some of that stuff. It's like yeah, like uh, like so. We did the eBay crawl. First thing I do whenever we do this is jump on eBay and get a bunch of game boxes as fast as yeah. I can. Um, so I have a bunch of, you know, the series, we're going to focus on Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver, but obviously there's Blood Omen stuff, there's the sequel to Soul Reaver, um, you know, there's a bunch of ones. In fact, one of the things I'd love to do is, um, I guess the last game to come out of that franchise was Nosgoth, which people maybe forget was made by Psionics. Wow. Um, and Rocket League was the first documentary we ever did on Noclip, and we were talking to them about Nosgoth. So I would almost love to go down again and, and talk to Dave Hagwood about that stuff. But um, I think, uh, uh, yeah, like the lead producer on Rocket League was the guy who was running the did Nosgoth right. too. So like, yeah, it's a uh, it's wild. There's a lot of like um, interesting games in there. But uh, the one thing that the one thing I totally got priced out on is that you know they have I didn't know, but they do actually did actually do a trapezoid box for. The PC release of Legacy of Kane, um, but it's like three hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I can't. Like, I think the most expensive. What's the most expensive box we did? The Lemmings one cost a decent. Yeah, I would think so too. Um, yeah, if if you don't there. necessarily need to keep things, I have. I, I know plenty of people, and also, I mean, I have a game store, so right. Feel free to message me, and um. that's a good point. <laughs> we should we should swing by as well next time. We're we're gonna do a lot of road tripping in a in 2022 in fact one of the things i wanted to mention to you guys was it would be wonderful i know a lot of this work is just like going into a search engine but if there was a physical aspect of this and obviously we'll put a maastricht massive covid asterisk up in the corner here for basically anything that ever involves real world stuff but um we know we're launching a uh sister channel we just announced to our patrons that's going to basically be a lot of our behind the scenes stuff that we never really get to share usually just like a place to like show up a bit more of the process and that type of thing and i'd love to like if we could like record a little thing about you guys getting any of that legacy of kane stuff um sourced for us would be just to highlight the foundation and the collaboration and you know the type of work that goes into this because like people are people are really into that and i don't know what happened last year but everyone is talking about legacy of kane soul reaver in 2021 it's like multiple youtubers are like trying to make it come back and stuff like it's just maybe just the right age hit like all the you know 14 year olds who are you know in 1999 or now or whatever it was or the august 16th 1999 that just had that on the screen banger year (laughs) that that memorized (laughs) 
That was, uh, I, was, I was about to do a spoiler for a movie. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> have, you guys, have you guys seen The Matrix yet? Not yet. Nope. No. Okay. I'm saying okay. nothing. Also, we're on a podcast, so I don't, I can't, can't speak Good for point. all of the, uh, all of the people listening. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Danny, for before we wrap up, um, I mean, I just have a, a question for you that's maybe not super related, but you've now been making documentaries for a pretty long time now. I think, uh, you know, like you said, lots of people like to hear the behind the scenes stuff. What are your interview tips? You already gave a really good one, so I would I would love to hear a couple more. I, I feel any. like the best tip I've gotten, uh, the best tip on this podcast was the one you gave me, I think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that one home with me. Um, yeah, I it's I think when I was you know I think there's no like perfect way to interview people. I think ultimately, you know, you're sort of uh, predisposed to how you talk to people a bit by the type of personality you have. So I it's hard to give like very rigid rules about how you should approach interviews. I think there's some best practices, but I I really do think that it's a very organic dynamic thing, and that something that works for me might only work for me because of who I am. Um, I would say the one thing I think is really important is, at least for my process, is I don't have, like, I don't come in with, like, a document full of questions. Um, Sometimes I just have, like, five words on a piece of paper that are, like, things that I absolutely need to make sure I get. But, you know, it's it's just so I don't, like, miss, like, you know, Kid Kirby. You know what I mean? Like, that type of thing. Like, just making sure I have it. Um. The thing that I do that's the most important is just like research, research, research as much as possible beforehand. Know the, in terms of the games stuff, like know as much about the studio as is sort of reasonable um, without making it about me. Like I ask short questions. I don't try and tell them what I know or anything like that, which I think was something in my earlier career at GameSpot, especially doing E3 stuff. Sometimes you kind of want to show you know what you're talking about and it can get a little bit that way. Um always try and like know as much about their career as possible again without overly so perhaps you know games they've worked on in the past and then just like you know have a genuine curiosity first like when i'm asking these questions sometimes i'm working on something and i'm maybe not as personally interested in it um and when that happens i spend a lot of time on forums or we i ask patrons or twitter people like what what is it about this that you find interesting? And I try and have that in my head. And then when it comes to stuff like these ones, it's just easy because I have my own sort of things that I'm interested in. So really, I I, I just try and have done the research beforehand to like to have a sort of a body of knowledge in my head. And then I'm basically trying to get them to just tell the story so I don't have to do voiceover. I'm trying to get them to explain in their own words what the thing was. Um. So yeah, I think just research as much as possible and then um, uh, without making this too much of a rambly answer, I guess the reason why I don't have lists of questions is that I very much try and let them dictate the flow of the conversation. So the reason I have the five points is that I can, if there's a point where I can get back to one of those, then I'll do it. But if they're talking about something, you know, if like I'm talking to somebody about lemmings and then they start talking about like, oh, we had a conversation in a bar that was about this type of thing. And it sounds like they want to keep talking about the bar, or the meetings they had at the bar. Let's just go there for a while. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, I don't, I let the sort of like the river flow down the mountain. I try not to throw up too many barriers unless it's like really necessary or time is an issue or something. So uh, as long as they're talking naturally and they're feeling 
like they're in the moment and talking about something that they're excited to talk about um that's fine for me and especially with the amount of people we interview no one person has the burden of telling everything and i let people know that at the start that like we're gonna interview like a lot of people and some of these people are on email and some people so you don't have to tell the whole story just like tell your part of it um so i think that's that's how at least how i tackle it but it's you know different per person different per um project as well and you can fix everything in post that's the last thing <laughs> don't don't worry about it you can, you can add editing is great editing is just like a magic wand you can do whatever the f- you want i think those are excellent tips thank you <laughs> I... <laughs> I like those um and it's i think it's the hardest thing to learn is to let people talk mm-hmm. well and especially your point about not showing what you know which i think um if you haven't done a lot of interviewing uh it comes from a place of trying to, like, at least for me, I think when I do it on accident, it's coming from a place of, like, trying to speed it along and, like, no, 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 I know that part. It's okay. Like, you don't nice. have to, <laughs> this part yeah. is obvious or whatever. But, I mean, it, you end up missing things that way if you don't let them explain things in their own words. So I think that's a, a very important part of it. And it's tricky, especially coming from your perspective, where oftentimes you're trying to get them to talk pretty down in the weeds on stuff, right? And sometimes, like, they don't know what strata you're asking them about. They don't know if you want the sort of the, the BBC answer, the right. you know de- developer <laughs> answer, which is down the bottom, or like somewhere in between. Um, so yeah, I, t- I totally empathize. For me, it was a lot of like trying to, it came from an, a place of nervousness or vulnerability. Of, of me wanting them to feel comfortable so that they know that they're in a good set of hands so that they can relax. So I'm going to overly try and make it look like I know what I'm doing, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? And sometimes I think it works every once in a while sometimes, but getting people to relax is the most important thing. I like direct eye contact and I smile a lot, but I think that's just normal for me. Irish people are very like a conversationalist and chatty and that type of thing, I think. Sometimes I think it maybe I, I'm overly that way in California where people are a little bit more, I mean, people are more outwardly here than they are in other parts of the States, but like our, our type of conversational is very, like I say hello to strangers on the bus, which is probably not a thing you should do maybe in American <laughs> cities. I don't know. Like, um, but like, I think, you know, having that genuine, like, you know, curiosity is, is, is helpful. Um, the only time it was really difficult was when I, we interviewed Naoki Yoshida in a, in a, in Japan for, I think it was seven hours in total we did three three days of two hours two and a half hours of interviews for final fantasy 14 oh and that was gosh. hard because it was because it was trying to have that connection while also obviously there's a yeah. language barrier so neither of us know what the other person's saying um but yeah it's fun work it's cool can't complain all right folks let's wrap it up there um danny thank you so much for joining us on the video game history hour uh, we are we're gonna link to no clip and and this documentary and, and everything in the show notes but uh it, for those listening uh where can people find you on the internet uh you can find us on youtube if you type no clip in you'll probably hit us it's a uh, youtube.com slash no clip video um i'm at daniel dwyer on twitter at no clip uh video on twitter and we are on patreon at patreon.com slash no clip uh you should support the Video Game History Foundation, though, on no clip, on a you can do both. Uh, you can do both. You do on. both. Do both. Do both. Or, or, or donate directly to the Video Game History Foundation. Maybe that's better. <laughs> I don't. Where, where do Maybe. we get the best cut? I don't know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Danny. Anytime.
Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour, brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Austin Eller. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music